and two. Well, hello, Sophie. It's uh, Sunday morning. Hope you are doing well. Great to have you on the show. We met at South by Southwest. And as I like to do with my guests, I ask you to introduce yourself, say who you are, what you do, and what is your mindset? Hello, Minter. I'm very glad to be in your podcast. So my name is Sophie Gibsons. I am a French qualified attorney specializing in digital media based between Paris, London, and my hometown, Brussels. I live in London, though I happen to find myself on a Eurostar very often, as you can imagine. As I do. Uh, I work in the technology IP media team of Auguste and Debussy, which is a leading full-service law firm based in Paris, with a strong international positioning, where I focus on providing legal and business affairs services in the fields of intellectual property, digital media, content and brands, and I particularly enjoy to work with companies operating at the cutting edge of the industry and also with startups. That's cool. That's big. And what about your mindset? Well, having spent the first seven years of my career as in-house in as business affairs in several media companies in the media industry, I would describe my mindset as uh, very commercial. I believe that it is vital in an industry where intellectual property rules and business models are connected in such an intricate way to always maintain a very firm understanding of the industry's business model and challenges. So in that regard, my last role, uh, my last in-house role at Getty Images where I was seconded for 12 months as a maternity cover for director, corporate counsel, was a brilliant example, I think, of the fusion of skills that you need to navigate the world of media in a digital era. So, it's a- so Sophie, what's funny is that, um, so you, like I, were born in Belgium. We, You, like I, spend our lives in between uh, Paris and London. Um, and we found ourselves in South by Southwest, which, of course, is in, in your respect and, and for me, sort of the the seminal event because it's digital music and film, which is all about what you are in, which is you know talking about looking at cutting edge, right? Yeah, absolutely, and this is why South by is such a extraordinary conference for uh, people like you and I. I think it goes to show how when you work at the crossroad where content and technology and new businesses meet, you have to uh, be ready to be always very creative, and especially as a lawyer. Mm. Well, as a lawyer, creative lawyer, now there's almost a paradox. So thinking about yourself as a lawyer and the work you're doing, what are the hottest topics in digital and or social media, however you'd like to describe it? Uh, Well, there is a few. On social media especially, um, I can think of several topics that are really hot at the moment. I think maybe if we look back at 2014, the number one subject was the one of sharing content over the internet. And obviously social media being a a deep place for sharing content. It was very much a subject about social media. So... It was to do with hyperlinking. So for many years in France, but also in many other jurisdictions in Europe, there's been a debate going on 
about whether or not linking to content on the internet was an act that required the permission of the content owner. So the underlying question was to know whether or not an hyperlink was an act of communication to the public. In 2014, two groundbreaking decisions by the European Court of Justice came to answer that question. The first decision uh, is known as the Svensson decision. It held that a website which redirects internet users through hyperlinks to protected works which are already freely available does not infringe copyright in those works. So they have indicated that hyperlinking is not an act of communication to the public, provided that the original material linked to uh, the original material linked sits with the permission of the right owners on the on the internet. But and obviously, the second condition is that the link does not enable access to a new public, which means access to a content who would be sitting behind a paywall, for example. All right. Well, so. Let's look at the, unpack that a second. In the first case, that that would sort of belie or undermine the whole notion of social proof. So, I mean, Google's whole algorithm, uh, one one large part of it, is based on backlinks. So, if a specific site is relate, you know, is hyperlinked to by many people, Google considers that then a reference point and gives it higher credits in its algorithm. So, you know, the whole premise of not allowing people to hyperlink back is is sort of almost antithetical to the Google algorithm. And this is a ex- very, very good point. And not only the mechanism of Google backlinking, but there's also another big issue for that decision, is in a world where the freemium model is a reality, we can see that the context, the experience, the access is being monetized over the content. Mm-hmm. So if I can link to content that I don't own freely, there is a high risk of content being commoditized to serve the context business. And that is also an issue that is very worrisome for the, to the content industry and especially right now to the image business industry. But the way it works, though, if I, I do my blog and I, and I link to, and I'm going to get into New York Times in a moment, but I link to another site, what I'm effectively saying to my audience is leave my site and go to the other one, which is, which is a highly uncommercial no, act for me. There's a difference because actually it's even worse than that. What the European Court of Justice said a few months after this Benson decision they went a step further and they said that not only hyperlinking was not an act of communication to the public, keeping in mind the two conditions we just discussed, but also framing was not an act of communication to the public, which means that you don't need to send your audience on someone else's website. You can embed the image, the content, the video that you are looking at sharing with your audience on your own web page. But at the same time, then, if you do that, you, you still need to uh, verify that you don't get hit for duplicate content. Because I, 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 I really look at what you're saying from a Google standpoint. You're looking at it from the legal standpoint. And, and so it's, it's rather interesting, the sort of 
the the battle going on there. Because if you copy, if I copy an article from New York Times, or, or let's say another one, a free website, let's call it you know moz.com, which has content, and I pick up a, a paragraph, I embed that into my 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 site. I link back to the Moz article. However, um, if if Google chose to, it could identify that as duplicate content if I didn't put a no-follow uh, sign on it. It could. It probably could, but there's there, there are um, a bunch of other issues from a legal perspective that would probably um, advocate against linking uh, in any case. Because obviously what needs to be looked at here is that the decision did indeed say that there was no act of communication to the public. Mm. So on IP ground, there is nothing apparently, that a content owner could do. However, the decision did not say that it was okay to use a commercial value created by another company. The decision did not say that you could link for a commercial use or non-personal use. The decision did not say anything about moral rights. The decision did not say anything about trademark. There is a whole bunch of other legal issues that you need to look at, especially when you want to use content as a brand or as a business online. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that the judges had in mind um, the basic way of how the internet functions. The internet is a web and you cannot prevent that web to operate normally. So in the, in the in the discussions that they are having these judges and lawyers to what extent do you feel that the Google algorithm plays a part is it completely just non non apparent is it non needed what, what what's the how is Google's algorithm playing into that because from my perspective that notion of crediting another person's site showing them to be the expert of the reference in a specific topic in my site and sending them away from my site uh, is is well read in the Google algorithm. Well, the thing is, um, and, and you're touching on another very good point, is that lawyers and judges um, are not all internet savvy or digital savvy, and they're not computer science scientists or experts. So unless someone takes that case in front of them, there is very little chance that they will know how that Google algorithm functions. And I think it's obviously Google, um, uh, which I'm sure keeps a very close eye to all of it, um, is probably already working on making its algorithm compliant mm. with all of those decisions. And they are at least certainly keeping a very close eye on it. I'm sure. Well, they have lots of things on their plate, don't they? So um, from a legal standpoint, I mean. So are there any other topics that you uh, wanted to talk about that you think are hot these days? Oh, certainly. So another topic that I uh, stumbled across recently, which really made me smile, was uh, the topic of uh, product placement in vlogs. Uh, you know how popular oh, yeah. uh, vlogs are these days, and you know how the social media talent, as we call them, are getting a lot of attention from, obviously, uh, the consumers and the people on the internet, but a lot of attention from brands as well. Uh, it's... It was quite interesting to realize how the 
Audiovisual Media Services Directive, which is the European text that has been drafted to control and regulate the um, mainly the audiovisual sector, it excludes from its scope the content sharing platforms. So the directive namely excludes content sharing platforms from its scopes such as YouTube and Dailymotion. And therefore, thanks to that loophole, one can say, one could say, in the directive, um, you can see today advertising authorities in every European country that are uh, running to draft guidelines and to encourage advertisers to be very responsible when they uh, decide to go see those social media talents to advertise their products. But basically, there is still, as it is today, a kind of a permission to do product placement, whereas it is very strictly regulated when you go on other traditional media. Well, yeah, but so at the same time, YouTube is trying to angle in on its end to get, to get a, a share of the revenue of product placement when it's happening. And that, that, is, that is true as well. I mean, they are trying at least to control and have a knowledge of what is going on in the world of product placement for a simple reason, is that YouTube is, before everything else, an advertising service. So if you sell advertising over a content, which is already containing another piece of advertising, this is something that obviously you want to be hands-on uh, when you're someone like YouTube or Daily Motion. Well, so do you think that YouTube's uh, perspective is more to protect their existing advertising or more about going and getting the money about the Coca-Cola can sitting on someone's desk in the middle of a filmed... Uh, you know, well, I think the two are not uh, mutually exclusive. I think they are definitely in the business to try and protect their advertising business by um, all means. So they're probably going to look at it from both ways. So um, the other, so I'm sure there are lots of other topics, but um, Sophie, uh, one of the things that I'm curious about is the notion of you as a lawyer being on social media yourself. So let's say that we there are many people, many industries where it's sort of easier as a as an industry person. Let's say you're working in an advertising company, you might be working for a B two C company. Let's say a L'Oreal, you know, you could be on social media, and it actually probably makes a lot of sense. As a lawyer, with all the laws that you write, you guys write, and the you know the the tendency to be very careful about every word and and not necessarily wanting to operate in real time, how do you deal with being a lawyer on social media? Well, the, your question links really well to the 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 next topic I was about to discuss because it has to do with being a lawyer on social media. So, to answer to your question first. I find it quite easy myself because I would say it's much more uh, because of my age rather than my job. I belong to the very first layer of the millennial generation and I was on MySpace and on Facebook from very early days. And also uh, in my situation, it is the boom and the excitation surrounding these services that made me decide to become a digital media lawyer. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, I think it's fair to say that I've being social has always been part of my day to day. What I could say regarding the lawyers as a profession, though, um, they seem to be very slow at adopting social media. 
And I do think, again, that this is probably more of a generational thing. Um, but also, I suppose that many lawyers feel that it is not their job to have an opinion, for they represent the interests of their clients, and that they would end up alienating, at least some of them, in many cases. Hmm. And I think there's also an issue, obviously, with confidentiality, which is still very high uh, on the agenda of lawyers, and, and it's something that really needs to be dealt with carefully. So do you, do you find yourself advising your fellow lawyers? So, I mean, let's say amongst your peers, do you, is the conversation when you're, you're having uh, a dinner with some old friends from law school, are you, are you talking about how you're dealing with it? And, and is it kind of a, a very different type of topic to the way it's handled with the upper generations like me? Um, it happens, but uh, actually it, did ha it happens more and more these days. And for one simple reason, there is another topic which is really hot at the moment in social media and a topic that is going to see a lot of lawyers getting engaged. And that topic is the reopening of the copyright directive. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> so that means that we have a, a copyright directive which is from 2001 at the moment and which is basically in charge of dealing with the um, overall copyright rules in Europe. The aim of the directive was to try to harmonize copyright rules in Europe in 2001. Uh, it didn't do such a great job at harmonizing copyright rules, and we still operate with 28 different copyright laws in Europe. What happened uh, today is that there is a strong pressure from the market to reopen that directive in order to uh, make copyright more relevant and more uh, compatible with new technologies. And that is really high on the European Commission's agenda. So who are the people pushing for it? Well, some would say that the people pushing for it are the big tech companies, because this is basically a struggle between the uh, tech, uh, tech companies and, and people who want to have access to content, such as startups, such, such as um, all the people leveraging new technologies, and the traditional model, or one would say traditional content owners who have been around for uh, many, many years, and who find themselves to be sometimes struggling with uh, new technologies and the pace, the rhythm of evolution in so that the, field. These would be the publishers? These would be traditionally, for example, the publishers. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the reason why I think it links back to your question about uh, being social when you're a lawyer and why I think it's a really interesting question is... Um, I don't know if you remember what happened in the USA a few years ago with SOPA, yeah. the yeah, 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 Stop Online Privacy Act. Mm -hmm. So SOPA was a, um, a piece of legislation which was being discussed and to basically uh, enact a very strict set of rules to be able to fight against piracy. What happened is that the pain against SOPA was so massive that even Jimmy Wales switched off Wikipedia and it, a, a few other services went dark in protest of the, the bills yeah. that were before Congress. So the opponents in SOPA claimed that the proposed legislation was threatening free speech and the fact that basically it would enable law, enfor law enforcement to block access 
to an entire uh, web service just because one image or one piece of content right. in one page was infringing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it worked. So that is why, obviously, I'm, I, I'm no, I don't have a crystal ball. I have no idea if the conversation that are going to be surrounding the debate around the reopening of the copyright directive are going to be as heated. But it is interesting to see what social media leverage of such topics can do. And I think as a lawyer, especially if you work in the uh, intellectual property field, you cannot get, you have to get ready for the next 12 months where that topic is going to be really high in the conversation. And I can bet that Twitter is going to be uh, very exciting to so, watch. So so you would suggest, if you had a behind-closed-door, so Sophie, I'm a lawyer, uh, should I be on social media? And the answer would be, especially if you're an IP. I think that you have to, and you must, uh, be on social media. I mean, I understand the, the, the basic need for being cautious when you're a lawyer or being uh, very trying to remain as neutral as you can. But uh, I think that especially your clients or your prospective clients must see that at least you understand and you engage and you're aware of all the issues that are being discussed and who will be discussed. And you need to find a way to make sure that your audience see you uh, being on top of all those questions. Mm. So I was just thinking, just to, just to dig one layer down again, about this copyright uh, directive and if it were to come up, the issue in Europe is not only do you have 28 different perspectives and 28 different laws that we have to rally around, you have 20, a lot of languages. And so from a listening standpoint, as opposed to SOPA, where we will, we, you and I could have listened in uh, because we speak uh, English, it was easy to see on Twitter the, the, the galvanizing of people, Jimmy Wales and so on. Whereas if you and I were trying to figure out what is the European reaction and we see some Czech tweets, we see some so-and-so tweets hashtagged in there, it becomes awfully more complicated to, to understand the, the European movement. That's correct. And I think that's a challenge. Um, and this is the reason why you can see all those um, organizations that are now either being created as we speak or, or older organizations that are getting a lot of attention um, in Brussels or international organizations because ultimately you need someone to carry your voice in Brussels and if you are living in Spain, in Italy, in the Czech Republic or anywhere, you need someone to carry your voice mm -hmm. uh, in in English or in French or in, in whatever language that the Commission speaks and to make sure that someone will represent your interest and mm. stay on top of everything. And this is where I see, again, the role of lawyers and advisors to be absolutely vital at this specific point in time. I, I, I smell a casino, as the Italians might say. I, I don't want to say the French word. Um, so, <laughs> well, just to give you, just to give you uh, an idea, in 2001, when the first copyright directive was being discussed at the European Commission, um, they, even the Wikipedia page, if you look at it, says that it was the biggest wave of lobbying 
that the Brussels had ever seen. Mm. From memory of any MEP, they had never seen such a wave of huh. lobbying in Brussels at that time. I so I don't know if we are in for exactly the same thing, but I would bet my money on it. It sounds like it, a bigger tsunami. So listen, um, Sophie, you're working with these uh, cutting-edge companies in media music who, as we know, have been at the forefront of the internet you know, tsunami and, and business model revolution and all this. What are the types what are the types of lessons learned that you have detected that you think are applicable to other brands who have been a little slower in having to deal with the internet thing, but now of course are full on? What are the types of things that you've picked up that you think regular typical brands need to be adopting uh, that you've learned from the situation slash mistakes that music and media have made? Yes. Um, I mean, it reminds me of my, my, my first, one of my first jobs uh, was from a distribution company in the world of music and where I was hired to try to take the business from a very physical still um, positioning to a digital positioning. And uh, it seems like since then, I've been doing that for the last 10 years in my career, and I, I enjoy that very much. So if there's one lesson uh, that has been, uh, at one point has been proven true during the last 10 years, I think it's disrupt yourself or be ready to be disrupted by others. I think that's the main takeaway that I have witnessed. Um, don't stand in the way of technology advancement and don't stand in the way of consumer behavior. Those are the um, main things I would say to any business. Mm -hmm. And uh, today you can see, obviously music has always been at the forefront of disruption. Mm -hmm. Image business is short following shortly after. Today you can see in the world of TV, uh, there is still a huge uh, attempt from TV content owners to um, lock the programming in the set-top box, whereas there is that concept of TV everywhere, mm -hmm. which uh, is still struggling to become a real thing yeah. because mainly of advertising revenues and because mainly uh, the business model is probably not ready or completely ready yet to be able to go from one business model to the other. And there is that idea, or you can at least see that struggle between the old way and the new ways and the reluctance or the uh, frictions that are being created as a result. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you look at things like Uber and Airbnb and so on, where they've come in disrupted, but where the installed base is a combination of players. So you have sometimes government uh, the advertiser, the agency, the company. So the there are different players that you're trying to disrupt. And so you're in this space. You've been having legacy relationships with these types of players. There are laws that you've been comfortable with and have been working with. And, and, and so within this, if you're in the system, it seems awfully titanic and uh, almost tentacular to sort of find a way to disrupt. Whereas if you have the incision of an air Uber that of course sometimes plays with the laws, but comes in at, at a different angle, it, it almost seems like you're being, I mean, you know, it's, it's impossible to react. 
No, but as you said, you named Uber, Airbnb. They are in the business of disruption from day one. So they do not own anything. Mm. So what they, they are context business, mm. again. Um, they provide a context for uh, uh, taxi. They provide a content for apartment housing. They do not own any car. Airbnb doesn't own any apartments. Mm. When you are a content owner, it takes much more courage and it's really difficult to imagine that you're going to disrupt yourself, which sometimes means to cannibalize yourself, which sometimes means to be ready to put in jeopardy a source of revenue that you had and that you were relying upon for so many years. Mm. And I think it's, again, to, to your point as being a lawyer on social media, there is another thing. Uh, which I can see and I can witness, there is an amazing uh, platform now, which is called SlideShare, where yeah. you can share content, you can share your presentation, all that material. And SlideShare, I don't see a lot of lawyers engaging with SlideShare. And when they do, I feel like they're being extremely uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it goes to the same logic. When you own something, a piece of content, even if you're a lawyer that owns a presentation where you put so many hours of your time, mm -hmm. so many efforts into putting it together in a, in, a, in a nicely way, in a way that your audience is going to be really uh, taken by what you're saying, uh, it, it takes courage to kind of put it out there and mm. believe that it's going to be a good thing for you. Mm. Well, I would, of course, my little side note would be um, make it uh, nice and easy to read if you're not a lawyer <laughs> so passing along so you um so if you worked at getty and you mentioned images earlier uh clearly images are sort of the place that creates engagement on facebook uh, instagram has got such higher uh, engagement so the images is, is uh i want to say king but it's definitely hot when you are looking at the image uh, space from a legal standpoint what are some of the key uh, issues that you see happening well, the image business is definitely really hot. You can see today with, uh, obviously, Instagram, Pinterest, Snapchat, even Facebook has been described uh, by its own founder as a picture-sharing picture website. Mm -hmm. um, so it's definitely a very hot area. The trends right now, the biggest one, are obviously user-generated content. Um, the websites such as Flickr or uh, the websites where you can share images with Creative Commons attached to them and the use of user-generated content and how to monetize user-generated content and how the, what role that content has to play in the B2B industry, I think is fascinating uh, to see everything which is happening in that area. Um, but on a... On a big picture, if you look at the big picture, then I think that what the image business is really about these days, and the biggest struggle is to try to understand what is the role of technology with regard to content. Um, the issue is the one of accessibility and of the portability of content. There is a plethora today of affordable and legal options for image users but it feels like there is a kind of disconnect between the creators and the technology. Mm -hmm. So as you said, I worked at Getty and Getty is an amazing place for that because it is a content, uh, historically a content company, which has become a tech company and which is probably today half half. 
So they were embracing the trends. And, and, but I cannot say that everyone is like Getty Images today. There's still a lot of content owners who have struggled with uh, embracing those trends. And the image business is doing extremely well, and I think it's paving the way for other businesses to follow in their step. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you got the the, the 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 camera the cameraman who you know the professional photographer whose business has been sort of turned upside down by the iPhone, and and then you have users who tend to think that because it's on Google Images, I can use it. Yes, yes, that's definitely a huge issue, um, and it goes back to the point about the uh, commoditization of uh, the image business and everything to do with context. And there is that idea that there might be some kind of unfair use by certain actors in that industry at the moment. I'm sure. And the search engines are going away from their original purpose a little bit by keeping the user on the search engine rather than linking to the website where they could find the image they're looking for. Um, And because they do not link back, there cannot be any money going back to the creator. And so the value is really captured. And that is where there is a problem. Because at the end of the day, you can invent all the frictionless licensing tools that you want, which is where a lot of the media companies are going these days. And that's the big challenge, to try to create frictionless licensing models where you could find the image wherever you want it and still make sure that a piece of the revenue linked to that image is going back in the creator's pocket. Well, because as you said at the very beginning, UGC, user-generated content, user-generated images is hot. And so that's, that's by, you know, so as opposed to a brand, I, I, I hire a photographer, I have my model, and all the rights are organized typically through an agency. In the UGC world, I'm, I'm by definition going out and plucking from the sea of images that are out there, images that I can then use to redistribute and rebroadcast about me, my brand, or whatever I want to message. But it doesn't mean that the person who's posting the content, even if it's a user, uh, as opposed to a professional photographer, doesn't need to be uh, compensated. So user-generated content is not exclusive with finding ways of making sure that the money finds its way back in the pocket of whomever posted the image. You can very well see professional photographers using Flickr or other user-generated content websites to post their images. Um, Yeah, and one of the things you and I were talking about just before we started recording was this notion of finding the owner of an image. So you go on to Google Images, as many of us do, and you find an image. Oh, this is perfect. I want to use this in my presentation. I want to use this on my blog post. And then, and yet, you have to sort of go through a million hoops in order to find out to whom it belonged and or how to make yourself legal. Yeah. And, and, and um, as of today, if you find an image that you love and you're adamant that this is the image you want to use... Uh, it can be a little bit of a roller coaster for you to find who is the photographer of that image and how can I license it and how, how can I make sure that I can use this image without having any uh, trouble in the future. So what you can do today is to try to find the image that is the most um, alike, the image that you want, the most similar to the one that you want on uh 
a place where you know that you can trust the images that are being posted. And obviously, if you go to an image bank, not only you know that all the images available are um, sitting there legally and that the photographer is being compensated, but you also have an additional guarantee, which I think can be really important, is that you know that the content of the image is being cleared. Yeah. And you, you always need to keep in mind that uh, models have a right under image in most of European jurisdictions. You cannot use the image of someone without permission. You also have buildings you can be protected. Hmm. Uh, one very good example that is uh, being discussed intensively these days on social media is the example of the Eiffel Tower. Um, when you take a picture of the Eiffel Tower by day, you can do whatever you want with it because the Eiffel Tower itself is no longer uh, protected. Uh, but but the, if you take the same picture at night, you have a copyright on the lighting. The sparkles that come every, five, every yeah. hour for five so minutes. So the, the way that it's being lit up is protected. Huh. It's a work of art in itself. And so if you have an image of the Eiffel Tower by night, you must clear that image with the content owner to be able to use it, oh especially if you use it in a commercial way. And, and then think also of designers. If you have a beautiful object which is being designed by a famous designer, and if that object happens to be in the image, what then? Is it okay to use it? Huh. So there's a, a ton of issues with images that uh, you don't necessarily think of because you're not a lawyer, and I, I, I would hate for you to spend your time thinking of those issues and that's what people like me is for is to uh, help businesses navigate those issues and understand that uh, where the, where is the risk and if it, the risk is really worth taking in certain um, instances. All right, brilliant. Well, Sophie, I'm, I'm just sort of shaking my head at this idea of who the heck am I going to contact to, to take a photograph of the Eiffel Tower? Um, so listen, anyone who, who would be interested in con contacting you would need your advice uh, to deal with these kinds of issues, what's the best way to connect with you, follow you? Uh, best way to connect with you, with me, is definitely on Twitter. My handle is Sophie underscore Goosens, which is G double O double S E N S. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find me on LinkedIn as well, and I welcome any uh, LinkedIn messages. It is sounds good. Easy. All right, well, Sophie, uh, you can go on and have a normal day. Thanks for being on the show. Great to have you, and uh, stay out of trouble. Thank you, thank you, Mentor. Have a lovely Sunday as well. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain -brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.